So Jesus said that we're to be salt and light. And I'm feeling salty today and lightheaded. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a fulfillment of the command of Jesus or not. I've had about a 10-day stretch where my sleep cycle is, is all uh, out of whack. And what that means is that most of what you get today will be incoherent. <laughs> but I've told you this, so now that you can be merciful to me in, in the midst of all that. I, I want to begin with a parable. It's a true story. It's an offensive true story. Uh, and I, I want to give you that warning up front. But it's, I actually consider just telling this parable and sitting down. After I've given the entire sermon, you all will agree that's what I should have done. But, but here, here's the story. Again, true story and, and offensive. I was six or seven, something like that. And I was at the hospital with my family because my grandfather's brother, whose name was Elvie, first-rate name, was there with his daughter Elvina, even better, and his wife, Isora, best of all. Elvie was having surgery, and so all of us were there awaiting the news of how the surgery had gone. We're sitting in the waiting room for hours, of course, and I don't actually remember the event. I just know that I was there, and I, and I grew up on this story. So as the story goes, after we'd been there for a few hours, Isora, may her name be praised, <laughs> leans over to my grandmother, whose name was Ben, relatively tame name in, in the family. My dad's mom's name was Billy Frank. Which is just a baller move, naming your daughter Billy Frank. If, if she had been a sane woman, I would have named my daughter that, but that's another story. So Isora leans over to my grandmother, Ben, and says, Ben, if that fat Indian woman over there, I told you it's offensive, if that fat Indian woman over there doesn't stop staring at me, I'm going to walk over there and give her a piece of my mind. And my grandmother, old Pentecostal lady with the, the bun piled up on her head, says, Azor, what do you mean? She said, I mean for hours now. I will look over there, and that fat Indian woman is staring at me and giving me, like, the nastiest looks. And every single time I look, without fail, she's looking right at me. And my grandmother says, Azora, that's a mirror. Yes, yes, she fat shamed herself. Yes, she racially profiled herself for hours. This is the word of the Lord. So in, in, the, in the readings for the day, we read the teaching of Jesus that we are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And that if, 
if the light is hidden or the salt has lost its saltiness, it's worthless. So it's a call from Jesus to be a certain kind of people, to be, to be light and to be salt. And he says the only way that we can do that is by fulfilling the law and fulfilling it in a way that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, what would that look like? I think it's clear that Jesus is a teacher in the tradition of Israel's prophets. He is the prophet who fulfills Israel's prophetic tradition. And the heart of the prophetic message is given to us today in the Old Testament reading, which is from the prophet Isaiah, in which he talks about the true fast. The fast that God wants is not a fast of coming before the Lord and bowing your head in shame, but a fast of caring for those who are in need around you. And he says, Isaiah says, speaking the word of the Lord, that if you want your light to break forth, and this is the season of Epiphany, if you want your light to break forth and you want your, your life to be filled with the glory of God, then this is what you must do. You must break the yoke of oppression wherever you find it. You must refuse to engage in gossip or slander, any kind of evil speaking. You must end the pointing of the finger. So you must end criticism and judgment. And you must feed those who are hungry and nurture those who are broken. This this is the teaching of Jesus that fulfills the teaching of Israel's prophets. This is what God wants from us. In In the language of Micah, what is it that the Lord requires of us? To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly before our God. What does doing justice mean? In the prophetic tradition of Jesus, doing justice means breaking oppression, refusing criticism and judgment, caring for those who are afflicted, and feeding the hungry. This is exactly what Jesus says in the synagogue in Nazareth when he announces his mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has called me to bring good news to captives, blind, imprisoned broken people. That that remains the teaching of Jesus. But how do we become the kind of people who can do that? And that, I think, is, is what Paul is teaching the Corinthians. Paul tells the Corinthians, when I was among you, I determined to know nothing except for Jesus and him crucified. I, I would know nothing but the story of the cross. And I lived that, he said, among you in weakness and fear and trembling. That I embodied that message by myself being one full of weakness. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He is made weak for us. He dies thirsting and crying out to God in a sense of abandonment, yet trusting to God. And Paul says, that message is the message I want you to to ground your faith in. Not in in your sense of human wisdom, but in this story of God, which is the story of God's power, which, of course, ironically, is a story of weakness and fear and trembling. And so I think if we're going to be the kind of people who are salt and light, who are fulfilling the commands of Jesus— by ending oppression, ending criticism and judgment, not pointing fingers, caring for the poor, nurturing those who are afflicted. If we're going to fulfill that that life that Jesus calls us to, 
We have to be people who again and again come back to the cross and remember this is the way God works in the world. This is who God is, and this is how God works in the world. This is what our God is like, and this is how our God wants us to live. So we have to again and again re-internalize the message of the cross. Unfortunately, I think that's a message that pretty, pretty easily and pretty quickly slides away from us. And we end up losing touch with the foolishness of the message of the cross, even though we, we continue to call ourselves Christians. And in losing touch with the message of the cross, we lose our saltiness and we hide our light. And so we must come back to the cross and, and learn it again. Th- this is, I think, the heart of the problem. We have learned somehow, we've made foolishness of the foolishness of the cross by, by somehow learning that Jesus' death is somehow mysteriously the plan of God. And thinking that way about the cross has made it so that we are numb to the evils that others suffer. Others suffer. And we think of our own suffering as given to us by God so that we can bear it and show ourselves to be loyal to him. Again, I think we've internalized the message of the cross in such a way that we've been numbed to the pain others suffer. And we've come to think that our own suffering is something we deserve or that at least we must bear because God wills it. It's... It's absolutely at odds with what's actually going on on the cross. And yet it's what we've somehow internalized. I was in a church service years ago. I'd planted a church, and this particular service, we were meeting in a home for a prayer, a time of prayer. So there are about 30 or 40 people in a house praying. And while we're there, a woman faints. Like, we were Pentecostals, so at first we thought she had been slain in the spirit. And then... We didn't really, that, that was a joke. But we realized right away something's terribly wrong. And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I mean, I, I'm a strange guy in all kinds of ways, and I have an anxiety disorder. So I was praying for her, but at the back, right, where everybody else had kind of gathered around her, and I was a safe distance away. And the man who's standing beside me leans over to me and says, now remember, we're in a prayer meeting, and a woman has fainted. And people are gathered around her like, oh God, like restore her. You know, people are upset. And he leans over to me and he says, I don't know why people get like this during prayer. He's like, I only have one prayer. I just pray, Lord, your will. Now that's some serious callousness. Right? A woman just fainted in the middle of our service. And his response to it is, God's will be done. How, how do we get to that, that kind of place? I'm, I'm doing research right now for an academic project, and I'm reading a lot about the responses in Pentecostal churches to the internment of the Japanese during World War II and their responses to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And one of the, and one of the things that's shocking about it is how distant their comments feel from the, the visceral reality of 135,000 people being obliterated, right? It's, most of their comments are about that this is a prophetic sign from God about what he's going to do at the end of the age. So they move immediately from a report about what's happened in the bombings to 
If you think that was bad, wait until God acts in judgment. And it's not one or two entries like that, but a few dozen, a few dozen comments like that, sometimes at length, sometimes just in passing. And again, the point is not to shame them. The point is not to point fingers at them. Again, we're called not to do that. But to recognize that it's possible to be in the presence of something that catastrophic and somehow it not register on your humanity. That your, your belief about the end times or your belief about the plan of God or your belief about the ways of God's work in the world keeps all of that safely at a distance so that it's, it's not internalized as, as something to pray about or something to, to submit to the Lord. It, it's, it's Again, it's, it's held at a distance. And I think this is rooted in a teaching that has run through the Christian tradition for a long time, maybe from more or less the beginning, that the cross is somehow mysteriously God's way of saving us, and therefore we can't resist injustice, because who knows if that injustice might be somehow the secret working of God to bring about something good. There's a a translator of the English Bible, a man named William Tyndall, who in the 1500s, writes a book called The Obedience of the Christian Man, in which he argues that God has established a hierarchy of authority in the world. Kings over magistrates, magistrates over men, men over women, and parents over children. And that everything God does in the world establishes and reestablishes this hierarchy. And he says the call is for all of those authorities, kings and magistrates and husbands and and men and husbands and, and parents, to be just. But even if they're not just, we have to trust that God's justice is at work in their abuses. So he says, if you have an abusive king, rejoice. Because it means that God is judging you for your sins. If you have an abusive parent, rejoice. Because it means that God is punishing you for your sins. If you have an abusive husband, rejoice. And this echoes the teaching of an early church father named John Chrysostom, who was preaching about husbands and wives and came to the issue of spousal abuse. And he says to to the men in his congregation, to the husbands, you should not beat your wives no matter what they do. Then he says to the wives, your husband should not beat you, but if they do, you should not resist it because Christ bore beatings for you. And you think about the way the cross has been internalized, right? That the injustice you're suffering is somehow the justice of God at work. So Tyndall even gives this example in case you weren't understanding him. He says, let me be clear. Imagine a man who is innocent of a crime, who is arrested by a judge we know is corrupt, and then hanged for this crime he did not commit. What should we do? Tyndall says, we should rejoice that God's justice has triumphed because clearly this man had sinned against his parents and had never been punished for it. Now, yeah, right. Think, Think about what that means. Think about how the story of the cross has been internalized in such a way that any injustice that happens in the world is spun or twisted into a story about how God's greater justice is at work bringing about 
some kind of retribution or a restoration of balance. And if you, if you believe that, then of course you would never resist injustice. Right? You, you would never fight it. You would never speak out against it. You would never end oppression. You would never break the yoke because the yoke is something God has put upon people to punish them for something that they've done wrong. You would never end accusation. Accusation is essential. Right? Pointing the finger is essential to that way of life. And if you yourself are suffering, you, you just have to bear it because somehow this is mysteriously God's work in your life. So if you have a spouse who's abusing you, that's your cross to bear. If you have a chronic illness, that's your cross to bear. This is the way that the message has been internalized. And somehow, we have to break from that. We have to break from that. And I think the only way to do it is to rediscover what is happening in the cross, to to rediscover the foolishness of the cross, understanding that it's foolish in the sense that God's wisdom is not human wisdom, but it's not senselessness. God's ways are mysterious, but they're not senseless. God's goodness is often too much for us to understand. But saying that God is good is not just another way of saying God is not good or bad. Or that God is both good and bad. To say that that I don't understand everything God is doing, that his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts, is not a way of saying sometimes God does bad things and sometimes God does good things and who am I to say? Go back and look at the passage. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. It's a passage about mercy. That he has, on, he has mercy on people we would not have mercy upon. That his grace extends further than our grace would extend. So somehow we have to challenge this idea that injustice, the yoke in the world, is somehow secretly God's work and therefore never to be, never to be resisted, never to be opposed. You with me so far? But how? How do we reimagine that? I, I think, again, it's about coming to a new understanding, a renewed understanding of what's happening in the cross. So we're told in scripture that Jesus is the just one who dies for the unjust, the godly one, the one who is God, who dies for the ungodly. And of course, we affirm that, we believe that. But we have to also go on to insist that the just one dies for the unjust in an unjust way. Jesus was murdered. He was betrayed He had a travesty of a trial, a miscarriage of justice led to him being tortured and murdered, executed. It's a story of of travesty, a story of a man who, of course, we know is God, but a man who lives in order to bring about the kingdom of God and gets killed for it. I mean, Jesus was not on some kind of suicide mission. He came to do the will of God, and doing the will of God meant that he was opposed and ultimately killed for what he said and what he did, and how he did it, and how he said it. And and on the cross, what is happening is God, the just one, is dying for us, for you and me, the ones who are not just, by suffering the greatest possible injustice. Theocide. We, we killed God. 
The God who loves us, the God who created us, the God who is remaking us, the God who claims us, we killed him unjustly. Remember, at his trial, quote-unquote trial, Pilate's wife sends a message to Pilate saying, I had a dream, have nothing to do with this innocent man. And Pilate himself says, I find no fault in him. Even Caiaphas says, listen, this is not a question of who's guilty and who's not guilty. It's a question of whether or not it's worth one person's death in order to save the nation. Everybody understands he's not guilty. And yet his death becomes necessary in order to keep the establishment in place. And everyone shares in that guilt, including you and me. But we won't understand the cross rightly unless we understand that the God who loves us allowed us to do the greatest injustice possible to him and then didn't let that be the last word. That he, that one, is raised from the dead. Notice, if you recalibrate the story of the cross in that way, not as the story of someone who died justly, or someone who died in a way that's neither just nor unjust, but someone who died at the hands of injustice. If you, if you tell the story in that way, two things happen. One is you realize that the cross is not a revelation that God's ways are above good and evil or above justice and injustice, but a revelation that God's justice is a justice that will not relent until all injustice is overcome. That in taking the cross, what is Jesus doing? He's breaking the yoke. He's ending the pointing of the fingers. He's ending evil speaking. He's feeding the hungry. And he's caring for the afflicted. He's accomplishing what Israel's prophetic tradition has said God wants to accomplish. So when you hear the message of the cross, you should not think, well, what, what can we do about the injustice in the world? Because after all, God is somehow at work in that. And you should not think the suffering you're suffering is somehow something from God, the plan of God to, to better you in some way. What you should see is that suffering in the world and the evil that is in the world is the site to which God has called you to be salt and light. The call to carry your cross is not to grin and bear suffering. It's to go to the suffering and free those people from the oppression that has brought that suffering on them. Come alongside those people who are afflicted and care for them. Bearing your cross does not mean God's plans are such that we can never know good and evil. Bearing your cross means we have seen the face of God in Jesus Christ. We know that he's against evil and he's called us to join him in fighting it. He's called us to join him in resisting it wherever we encounter it. But the only way to do that rightly is in fear and trembling. In weakness and fear and trembling. The only way to embody the message of the cross in this world is to recognize that you just literally cannot point fingers. Because, Isora, every time you point a finger, you're pointing at your image in the mirror. Literally. You realize that, right? Every human being we encounter in this life is the same image we are. The image of God. Every harsh word you speak and every harsh word spoken against you is spoken by someone looking right in a mirror. 
Every injustice done is done by someone to themselves. This is where James Baldwin is so right in his reflections on on racism and slavery. And he says, as horrific as slavery was for African Americans, it's more destructive for the slaveholders. Because to do that kind of evil to another person is to do that kind of evil to yourself. If you treat other people in dehumanizing ways, you're stripping your own humanity away. You're looking in the mirror, Isaiah. So in order to live this, we have to come to terms with the fact that the way God's will is accomplished in the world is not by power, but by powerlessness. Not by strength, but by weakness. Not by assertions of authority, but by service. I am among you as one who serves, Jesus says. That's, that's why I've come. So old school Pentecostals sang a song, there's power in the blood. Anybody ever heard this before? We might sing a bar or two of it, right? There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. But the story of the cross is not that there's power in the blood. It's that there's powerlessness in the blood. And that it is possible to live in this world in weakness and fear and trembling in such a way that injustice is broken. I'm going to end with this story. So in 1968, there was an Assemblies of God pastor who attended the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta and then wrote about it for the denominational magazine. It's called The Evangel at the time. And it is a stunning, kind of heart-rending story. Because this Assemblies of God pastor goes to MLK's funeral And then in his report says, I'm not sure why I went. I felt drawn to go, but I don't know why. And I want to make it clear, he says to the readers, that I do not stand with MLK. I do not believe in nonviolent civil disobedience. I'm glad that it's nonviolent, but civil disobedience is forbidden. The Bible commands that we submit to authorities. Now think for a moment about this. The exodus never happens if it isn't for the civil disobedience of midwives who refuse to kill the firstborn son, the sons of Israel. It never happens if Moses doesn't confront Pharaoh. I mean, Moses doesn't go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, can I feed the slaves? He doesn't go to Pharaoh and say, hey, can we ease up on the oppression of the slaves? He says, free the slaves. And that, that's where the story begins. The church begins in the aftermath of Pentecost. The Spirit has fallen on them. They've, they've spoken in tongues. They have spilled out into the temple courts. They're meeting in Solomon's portico. And the authorities come to them and say, stop preaching this story. Stop talking about Jesus. And the apostles say, no. And that begins the story of oppression and martyrdom that marks the early church. There is no Israel without civil disobedience. There is no Christianity without civil disobedience. And those stories are perfectly in in fulfillment in the story of Jesus who is killed as a criminal. How could a Christian, of all people in the world, how could a Christian say civil disobedience is forbidden? 
Without civil disobedience, we literally wouldn't exist. Because somehow the message of the cross has been internalized in such a way that even injustice is somehow just because God's ways are not our ways. It gets worse. Like I said, you're going to wish that I just told the story of Isora and, and walked away. So he says he, he, he attends the funeral. Afterwards, he goes back to his car. And a scripture comes to mind. A scripture comes to mind. And the scripture that comes to mind is, Slaves, obey your masters. So that the name of God is not blasphemed. Now again, we're not singling this man out for shame. It wasn't just his story. It's published in the denominational magazine. It's our story. It's my story. But he went to the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. And the verse that came to his mind was, Slaves, obey. He goes back to his church and prays. And says that God starts to show him that the cause of the violence in in the nation at that point, the violence of the rioting, would never go away until people realized that the only thing that would change the world is the preaching of the gospel. There could be no social political involvement at all. And he then says... Our black brothers and sisters need to learn this, but they won't learn it from us. So we have to pray that God will raise up real ministers among them who do not preach a social gospel, but preach the gospel so that they can learn that this kind of rebellion is always going to be judged by God. deeply diseased way of seeing the world. But the man is just a victim of the way we're preaching the cross. There's, there's nothing, he, we, we can't scapegoat him as if we could somehow single him out from the herd and the rest of us understand better. The very instinct to do that is a sign that we're doing the same thing. That same mentality is in me. How many injustices am I absorbing every day without resistance simply because I have some kind of trust that even injustice is God's justice? How much suffering am I just ignoring because I'm too absorbed in my own spirituality, my own walk with the Lord? We have to rediscover the message of the cross is there's no injustice that God will tolerate Wherever there is injustice, God will go there, align himself in solidarity with those who are suffering until the yoke is broken. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. And we'll have disagreements about how that is to be done. We're not all going to vote the same way. We're not all going to think the same way about social and political issues. But that's, that's not the issue. Where we all have to be the same is that we all have to recognize that everything that's happening in this world is our responsibility 
We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. This is not about you and me finding a way to make it to heaven and everyone else be damned. This is about you and me being called by God to live in the world for their sake. And these injustices that are breaking out all around us need to be broken by a people who know how to live the cross, by people who know how to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and love their enemies and pray for those who abuse them, by people who know how to live in weakness and fear and trembling without ever pointing a finger because we trust that even though God's way is powerless, it can overcome power. And even though God's ways seem weak, God's weakness is stronger than the strength of men. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you for calling us into collaboration with you. My prayer this morning is that we will feel that call that we will feel the call to be the light of the world, to be the city set on the hill, to be the salt of the earth, to realize that the call to bear our cross is a call into the heart of injustice, to embody your goodness for the sake of our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And for those who are suffering in this room this morning, I pray that they will hear the good news. It's not that you have heaped suffering on them and therefore they just should bear it, but that that suffering is a, is a call for those around this to come to us and share and bring the love of God to bear in the world for our good. Lord, help us to internalize the story of the cross in ways that make us cross-shaped so that we can live your powerless life in the world. Amen.